You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we look beneath the surface to see what's happening with music and tech. I'm Dimitri Vitsa, your regular host. I'm the CEO and founder of Rock, Paper, Scissors, and I'm joined by our irregular host, <laughs> Tristan. <laughs> that was Nier. my line. <laughs> <laughs> you are irregular. <laughs> We're with Rock, Paper, Scissors, the PR firm that focuses on music, tech, and music tech. And uh, we are bringing back another news roundup this week. Seems like a great a great way to to share things with our our listening public. So we've just kind of gathered up some news from the past. Uh, week-ish, uh, maybe a little more, and just wanted to share with you what we've been reading and, yeah, and pretty much just chat about it. We were interested to see our friend uh, Richard Burgess, the um, head of A2IM, did a guest column in Billboard called The So-Called Local Radio Freedom Act is Actually an Anti-Creator, Anti-Property Rights Bill. Tell us how you really feel, Richard. Uh, Richard <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got a nice smiling picture there. <laughs> Um, so, Tr- Trista, what'd you what'd you take away here? Well, basically, um, this law is uh, it, it's it's a bill. It's not it's a proposed law, and I don't think anyone's even signed on to it yet to bring it before Congress. But it is a bill that would more or less maintain the status quo that has been chipped away um, at by various pieces of legislation and court rulings lately, and that is to keep um, keep it so that radio stations do not have to pay recording rights holders. For for their uh, material, for using their music. And um, not surprisingly, Mr. Burgess is quite upset about this. And a lot of artists and those who support them and labels are, are not behind this as well. And we're, uh, just to note that the U.S. is the only country in the economically developed world that has this kind of copyright law and this free pass for certain kinds of terrestrial radios. So it is kind of a, a loophole that maybe we should consider closing in this day and age. But um, uh uh, Richard lays out some pretty damning arguments, um, and I think there it's a it's a good read. Yeah, there's a quote here from the piece: "The local radio freedom act is a deception. True local radio is a rarity today. Radio industry consolidation has allowed ten radio corporations to own hundreds of U.S. stations. These ten companies generate more than half of the nearly fourteen billion dollar radio industry revenues." So we're not talking about your local mom and pop station that does all this awesome stuff. So of course, I guess community radio and other might be affected. I don't know how the law would would be written um, ultimately to uh, protect maybe our friends that are doing nonprofit or community-based radio projects. But uh, for commercial radio, I definitely think it's a loophole worth closing, but you know. Yeah, and you know, um, anyone in the music industry pretty much knows that these uh, initial kind of um, values and expectations and legal frameworks were established because uh, the the record companies were using radio as a promotional tool. It was the primary way to sell recordings. So they were glad to have an audience and the radio stations were the way to get the music out to the masses so they could consider a, a purchase. <laughs> yeah, the tit for tat is really broken down. Um, and radio, not to say that radio doesn't have its place and its value and it has a lot of promotional value and a lot of listenership. But it's it's there's more of a question about a value and, and how much uh, music creators are getting um, in return for the use of their work. And um, there's still a lot of people listening to radio. 
Very true. Um, it's 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 millions and millions and millions of people who that could be their primary source of any audio or possibly any news content. For example, lots of people hanging out in their cars driving to and from work. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. And uh, it's changing. It's decreasing, and it will decrease very very rapidly when we have autonomous cars and people are switching to video in their cars. Oh my God. <laughs> which will be a whole other thing. So I mean, it's not easy. It's not gonna be easy for the radio industry in the future. But um, but all of these all of these licensing values have been negotiated step by step as we digitize and connect through new ways, through media and audio and music, through new ways. And um, it's interesting to see that this one has still got this more traditional licensing approach. Uh, and then you say, well, look, Spotify and Pandora are paying for this music. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and people, creators and rights holders aren't all, all happy with those payouts either. <laughs> yeah, do you wanna jump to our, um, to the amazing DJ Jazzy Jeff and some of his comments? Oh yeah, um, yeah, there, was, there were a couple of articles this, this week that caught my eye. Um, DJ Booth, djbooth.net uh, had a piece, DJ Jazzy Jeff, only artists are complaining about streaming. It was actually kind of a, a spinoff of his interview with Vibe. Um, they kind of pulled out some specific uh, quotes and, and, and discussed them, but he, he, he was quoted as saying, everybody who complains about the streaming industry are only artists. I've never heard a label say one bad thing about the streaming culture. They figured out a way to make themselves relevant and latch onto something. And they also figured out the way to be quiet about it. They don't say anything. Understand everybody didn't go to the store and buy records, but everybody's got a phone. Everybody got some form of streaming something. So we are getting paid off of everybody with a phone. <laughs> and then, uh, and then the, the writer, um, goes on to, to sort of talk about some of that shift. Um, and Jazzy Jeff is talking about how important it is to own, own your masters, but people don't really understand what that means and when the payout's going to be for that kind of thing. Um, you, you, uh, you get told that you need to, to own your masters, but there's no clear clarity around the payout, which is interesting. That's really where the rub is, right? Yeah. A record label might give you an advance, um, but then they're going to keep the longevity of that contract. Um, and, and that makes that's a really painful point for a lot of artists, especially those who sign contracts sort of right before this big tr transitional period. And if, um, you know, in some ways, owning your masters is future proofing your your musician's business model. And I, I don't like using that terminology all the time about the act of making music, which has many other sides as well. But um, if you're thinking about the business side, owning as much as you can of whatever it is you're creating and the rights to it is essential. And so, um, however, there's some, there are some uh, younger hip hop MCs and um, notable folks that are making a pretty big play into reaching directly out to fans and really cutting out the middleman, um, which, you know, no matter what you think of them or their art is pretty admirable and, you know, shows a lot of, uh, I guess, what may have been called back in the age when radio was great, a lot of moxie. Well, ironically, we saw a piece about Nipsey Hustle. So there's a lot of hustle too, um, from a from an outlet called Trapital. Um, direct to consumer hip hop is not a game, and it's Nipsey Hustle's. It, it uh, similarly, it, it's kind of pulling something out of I think a recent Forbes article. He was did a GQ 
uh, photo shoot and so forth. So they're kind of like pulling out some of the, the highlights from those conversations. But the article says one of his tenants is the economic value in the scarcity of markets. In 2013 and 2015, he made headlines when he sold copies of his mixtapes for $100 and $1,000 respectively. On his Grammy-nominated album Victory Lap, he rapped about his quest for vertical integration. The Crenshaw <laughs> native is one of hip-hop's direct-to-consumer gurus. So it goes on to talk a little bit about how he manages his business. And his business is very diverse and has a lot of elements to it and um, seems to really connect with the with his fans and his listeners. And it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. It's not necessarily a model, and I think this is what the article is is pointing to, is this isn't really a model everyone can emulate, um, even those who are in hip-hop and maybe have some similar ethos or um, aesthetic to their work. But there is some, there, maybe there's some takeaways for artists and managers and those who love them in general, in that there are ways beyond just um, the recording and live music worlds that people should be thinking seriously about, though. We were talking about this on the way in. The D to C realm can get very crowded and noisy very fast. So like a lot of brands are discovering that are D to C. Um, the advertising spend gets so horrendous that it's very difficult to manage without brick and mortar retail, without certain other aspects. And I think Nipsey Hustle has physical stores as well as um, this big online presence and and pretty um, dynamic business model, et cetera. I mean, it's funny. We, we There was a lot of information floating in the music industry about five years ago about D to C, direct to consumer. I think partly because it was really starting to grow for the first time where mm -hmm. you saw the traditional distribution and retail channels kind of um, falling apart or withering away yeah. or transforming and so forth. So there was a lot of, you know, here's how to build your website and here's how to monetize and here's the merch you should be selling and here's what you should be doing at your live concerts, all that kind of stuff. So here we are talking about um, D to C with with Nipsey Hustle, and uh, this is a guy that has ventures in cryptocurrency, real estate, barbershops, co working spaces as well. So it's a different <laughs> level of D to C, I think, than <laughs> than maybe here's, we, we here's were somebody about. who has a serious talent for business and has a mind that is a you know some people are are just really gifted marketers and um, and that is a is a it's a pretty you can kind of I mean, it's pretty impressive. Let's widen, let's widen back out with some of the big news stories uh, of the week. Um, so there's been several posts about Spotify in India and the, uh, the game of uh, PR ping pong going between Spotify <laughs> is and it chicken or Warner. Ping pong or what is going on over there? Because one of those things that as you watch the headlines come in, you're like, are you kidding me, man? Like, this is just a mess. So this is a, the, the reason it's interesting. Well, there are a couple reasons it's interesting, but one of them is the market. And we'll get to that in a second and why India is, is such a fascinating place to try to launch a music streaming service. But the other thing that is so interesting is um, the fact this was played out in public and it seems and you know correct me if i'm wrong it seems like spotify in its licensing back and forth has kept most of those things in the you know in in the back room mm. um and this was like all out in the open for everyone to see and i'm you know ever since spotify had its dpo they're a lot bolder and kind of dare i say ballsier um in kind calling out major labels or other people they see are getting in their way um, and I don't know whether this is just a product of, of that or of a serious um, need to move into India or both or whether somebody goofed up. I, it's really, really interesting that this battle has come to light. So basically to summarize. Um, and, and we pulled some information from 
um, Media's music industry blog, Mark Mulligan's blog, uh, an article called Why India Matters to Spotify and Why It May Not Deliver. And I just wanted to summarize the debate. I, I got so carried away with the, whoa, dude, part of it. <laughs> um, so uh, Spotify is like, we're launching in India. And Warner is like, oh, really? No, you don't have our licenses. And they're like, well, we'll use a statutory license. Look, we have a court you know, injunction that says that. And then Warner's like, no, that is nonsense. And that's you know, BS and this other sort of having this like uh, fist sort of verbal PR fisticuffs um, playing out. But Spotify did launch. <laughs> and uh, Mark Mulligan had some thoughts as to why this was such an important market for the uh, global streaming service. Including talking a little bit about the specifics of the Indian market and how it's different. This is what's interesting. I mean, on Music Tectonics, we talk a lot about the globalization of the music space because we've said this on previous episodes it's a large part of what the current growth is all of a sudden the quote addressable market is getting billions and billions of more people bigger because of some of the removal of challenges of distribution through digital services um but what you find out in each market is it, what worked in one market doesn't necessarily work the same Absolutely. so mark mulligan talked about you know how music plays a different role in India. The the, the Bollywood and devotional themes are the genres that are are uh, really strong there, but aren't mainstays of non-Indian subscription services. So you have to onload a whole bunch of new content, and Bollywood has a has a very um, uh, close knit label system and and music system of its own. That's its own kind of culture and and breed from what I understand it's different from um, the way labels work anywhere else and um, that I mean, I've, I've heard mostly complaints from independent music musicians in India about how difficult it is to get a, a bigger foot you know a bigger sort of a presence in the market because of Bollywood's just massive huge elephant in the room kind of presence so um, and the other thing that's so interesting about India is that unlike some of the other markets Spotify's launched in, there are some pretty solid, well-established competitors that have years ahead of uh, Spotify, like Savan and Ghana. Um, so there's and there's a couple others as well. So there's some major um, business uh, threats as well. So I'm I'm, I'm interested to see how Spotify is going to propose to get market share there. The other thing, and uh, you're pointing to this now. Uh, Dimitri is um, that oh yeah yeah just just that incomes are so, so at a different level in India the average per capita income is five hundred fifty three dollars a month Spotify's price point is a dollar eighty so what does it look like when you're trying to do the same thing at a cheaper per user rate with many more people and what are the dynamics yeah. of that that changes the uh, that that changes the licensing relationship in a, in a sense, as well as the um, ratio of profit to scalability. <laughs> yeah, the, and the, the scale is massive, and but it's uh, because there are so many Indians who really love um, their cell phones and have a lot of used data very merrily. And so there's a lot of potential there, but these are not people who are going to be able to fork over 10 bucks a month or 10 euros a month by any means. So in other uh, kind of globally tectonic seismic news, uh, music business worldwide, Tim Ingham's report did that Tencent and I don't know what KKR is, are mulling $22.7 billion Universal Music Group bids, which uh, you know we've been hearing for years about the impact of just China's size and the fact that the, the economic uh, borders are becoming more and more open, but to imagine the largest um, major record label having Chinese 
ownership. That is an interesting <laughs> dynamic. And maybe I don't know how that would play out in the kind of activities or uh, artists that Universal would want to sign. Um, it looks like KKR is uh, one of those mysterious global investments groups. We don't, mm-hmm. you know, who knows what that is, right? Um, <laughs> maybe maybe somebody, you probably, it's there's probably somebody huge. out there who does, but it's like big. <laughs> People with lots of money and, you know, offices Since JP and Morgan stuff. is valuing uh, this, this uh, company at $50 billion. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, as one does. So we don't know a ton about this. And of course, when you have these um, these sales happening, there's always a lot of uh, uh, bids. Com- not a lot, but <laughs> there's yeah. you know a lot of conversation about well, where, where are the bids and so forth. And, and you, you can't really predict what's going to happen. But it, just, just putting that out there as a um, potential hypothesis of an owner, it's just it's a little bit mind boggling um, because I don't think this is just about the music industry. This is no. this is this would be an example of a huge shift that's continuing to to emerge beneath the surface yes. of, <laughs> of a society. Big, big macroeconomic shift and, and big shift in the power dynamic between, um, say, the U.S. and China, where we've traditionally viewed China, well, traditionally in the last couple decades, as the place we outsource all of our manufacturing to, and where there's cheap labor and no one cares about things like environmental regulations and stuff like that, so we can make stuff cheaply. Uh, But the tables are starting to turn, and it'll be interesting if the power gets a bit more balanced, what the world's going to look like. So So turning to a little more fun, light uh, story (laughs) uh, from Billboard, Pandora's new stories tool lets artists attach voice commentary to songs. Um, uh, these could be actual stories, unlike the stories in some of these other places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of cool, you know, when when you see uh, different different uh, music tech companies, streaming providers, and so forth, kind of evolve and adapt in interesting ways. You know, you don't know this may or may not stick. Who knows? We've seen stories emerge lots of places, the so-called <laughs> stories. Um, but what's cool about this, in conjunction with the um, Spotify acquisitions of major podcasting players, is is that uh, it creates a new social aspect to Pandora where people can add voice to um, their playlists. So it gives them a little bit of a DJ-like feel. And if you've ever tried to podcast um, and you've thought about, oh, we should put more music in there, then you face the licensing issue. Well, Pandora is kind of flipping that concept on its head to say, well, the licenses are already covered by your subscription or ads within Pandora. So adding vocals between it and crowdsourced vocals. I know they're starting with artists, but I'm assuming there's the possibility they're they're using the AMP Pandora's artist marketing platform as kind of the the first way that this is getting um, released through self self serve marketing tools. But uh, but clearly you could see a, a pathway where this would widen out and people could share music in a new way where they get to talk in between the tracks or on the tracks with the tracks, all that stuff. It could be really cool, especially if someone's saying doing a survey of their career or um, has a series of tracks that are based on life experiences. I mean, it could also just be pretty much like a like an audio ad on Spotify, which is also becoming more accessible to, to artists at different levels. But, um, but I could see if this were implemented well, it could be really, really compelling and fun to listen to. It would be almost like a little audio documentary or a little, um, like, you know, being on a car trip, hearing a mixtape with your favorite artist. That could be really fun. Absolutely. And, and, you know, they specifically called it stories and not ads. So, <laughs> so, I mean, it seems like they're not leaning into the advertising side of it, right? They're, they're leaning more into, uh, they're not ads they are calls to action. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, we're going to have to wrap up here in just a minute. Let's just go through a couple more real quick. Um, this Folio Mag piece, speaking of podcasts, can Spotify help fix podcasting's uh, biggest challenges? Did I say that right? I think I said that right. <laughs> um, partially a little bit uh, a, a nod towards, wow, now Apple has some competition possibly, which could be a good thing for, for creators and publishers. And uh, on the other hand, there's another platform that's inserting themselves between creators and, and listeners. Um, but I think somebody bought Stitcher too. I think maybe Deezer bought Stitcher. So this isn't, it's not the first time something like this has happened. Yeah, it's, it'll be, uh, it's interesting to see how this is all gonna play out. Um, and then you found this cool thing up in Seattle. You wanna talk about this? This is from the Seattle Times. You have to hear it to believe it. Seattle Symphony's Octave 9 is a performance venue that morphs to simulate various environments. Yeah, this is a really cool um, new capacity that a lot of spaces, ha not a lot of spaces, but certain spaces have. They're engineered um, using uh, all sorts of different architecture, both digital and physical, to be able to change. So that when you're playing, say, a chamber piece, if you're the you know, Seattle Symphony, you have um, uh, you can play something. You can play in a more intimate space, so it feels like you're in a I don't know a small wood paneled room versus you're playing a Mahler symphony. You definitely want a big, open, huge, cavernous world for that music to live in. So it's really, really amazing how um, how, how the technology is allowing us to. In some ways, it's a kind of uh, altered reality that's all audio based. Um, I mean, or sorry, uh, yeah. Augmented exactly. reality? <laughs> yeah, I, altered reality is, is, it's, you know, it's getting to that time of the week. Well, you know, it's not exactly, yeah, I mean, it's it not, is. It's, yeah. Music is the first augmented reality, I'd, I'd, I like I'd argue. That. Yeah, I, I mean, agree. that's why people had ritual music, is because it would transform this ordinary scenario into something where you could say contact you know, the gods or spirits or Yeah, lots of trance-related stuff. Yeah, we went there on Music Tectonics, guys. <laughs> you can see our roots showing. <laughs> exactly. All right, I'll hide the didgeridoo. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, yeah, so that was called Octave 9, um, I think. And you know what's cool? I was up at the um, uh, Fort, uh, sorry, Sweetwater. It's the Sweetwater office is the, the big, probably a lot of you buy musical instruments from Sweetwater. The big catalog company is actually based just north of here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, by a few hours, and they have their own little campus. I mean, they think it's a big campus, but I mean, it's not like Google campus, but it's cool. Um, you can go and have lunch and listen to lunchtime concerts and things like that, but they have a gorgeous recording studio there, and in addition, they have this nice, smallish theater that also has this type of setup that you're describing from this article where um, you can go up on stage and they can flip on some settings and you can yell and you can either get a cathedral sound or you could get a canyon. It's stuff amazing. Like that. But you know, Sweetwater Wood, they, they, yeah. they have <laughs> all they those manufacturers have the technology. and stuff housed <laughs> right there and so forth. So, so um, just wrapping up with one last piece that's a local piece here in Bloomington, Indiana. We, we're not going to report on Bloomington every time we do a podcast, a news roundup, <laughs> but this is kind of a cute, cute story that... Um, that one of our former uh, uh, co-workers sent over. Um, the students come together to put on tiny dorm concerts. So IU has some some college kids who are doing kind of like modeling a little uh, series after the NPR Tiny Desk Concerts, which we thought was kind of cool. We've had Bob Boylan from Tiny Desk Concerts uh, speaking at the DIY Musician Conference the past couple of years that we organized with CD Baby. And, um, and, and he's been a great friend to one of our clients, Global Fest. So we've known him for years and it's just cool to see the effect of uh, his work living beyond even the work that he has to do. <laughs> and I love that um, people are making their own music and creating their own spaces for music to be made and really taking it 
taking command of it and not just uh, being passive experiencers or consumers, but being people who organize events and try to bring live music into their world, even if they have to cram, you know, five people into a little dorm room. That's like really encouraging and exciting. Yeah, always new stuff happening, you know, and it's it's not always about the what's happening at the the big tidal wave hurricane type level stuff, the the fifty billion dollar valuations or the arguments over blanket licensing, but but just people <laughs> creating stuff and sharing music in awesome social ways, even if they're sophomores in college or yeah, any, that's where anything it starts. Exactly. That's awesome. Yeah, so great. Thanks so much for joining us on Music Tectonics. Tristra, thank you. You're welcome. Thank and, you, Dimitri. <laughs> and thank you out there in podcast land. Uh, keep keep sharing uh, the podcast with your friends and family. Please uh, give us a five-star review if, you, if you're digging it. And if you don't, just keep it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. Bye. You're listening to Music Tectonics. Music Tectonics.